This is Dr. Megan Galaski, and you're listening to Wild Healers, a podcast from sage, empowered, and passionate women bridging the gap in a polarized world of healing. Episode 8, Racial Disparities in Healthcare with Dr. Kuka Joseph. The wall has been built between Western medicine and alternative healing, and it's time to demolish it. If you're ready to see what could happen when we dare to explore uncharted territories of healing, then join your hosts, holistic physician Dr. Megan Golaski and certified professional midwife Sarah Rosser. You're listening to Wild Healers. Hello, everyone. We are so happy to be back with another installment of this little series that we're doing. Um, And you know that Sarah and I just have a really big passion to amplify as many other people's voices as we can and hear from as many different perspectives as we can. And and we are so lucky to know this beautiful guest that we're having on. Dr. Kuka Joseph has joined us today. Hi, Kuka. Hi, how are you? So that's interesting. Okay, I don't know if it's the right time, but uh, there's a history behind Kuka. My real name is, I forgot to mention that my is, is Manushka. I didn't know if you would want me to say Manushka or your chosen name, Kuka, because oh. I do know the story behind your your name. I, I didn't know if you'd want to share it. Oh, that's that's perfect. I'm just looking at being in this podcast and it being a little bit. But Kuka is, um, if anybody would uh, see my name written somewhere, they would be, how do you say this? You know, but once you say it, Manushka, it's easy. But I could not say my name when I was a kid. So when they were asking me what my name was, I would say Kuka. So anybody that calls me Kuka, and as I grew on social media, I feel more um, that I relate more to Kuka than Manushka. <laughs> and so, so it's just so interesting that now more people know me, more people know me as Kuka than they know me as Manushka Joseph. So if you were looking for, my, you know, Kuka Joseph MD, nothing probably would, oh, yeah. <laughs> would come yeah. up except a social media page. <laughs> I know. It's so funny to like think of, of our like, professional sounding names like Dr. Manushka Joseph and Dr. Megan Golaski sounds funny to me versus like Megan Kuka. Mm -hmm. That's us. Um, Well, yes. And I love both names. I think they're both beautiful, but yes, if we're trying to find you professionally, we will type in your whole name. I, I knew your whole name because I definitely internet stalked you before we started this. I asked Meg, I was like, does she go by Kuka or Manushka? And, what? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So we have Kuka on and briefly, I, I got to meet Kuka in Bora Bora. So, I mean, boring, but hey. <laughs> And our history together is that uh, we are are obviously both women physicians, and we were on a retreat for uh, empowering women physicians. And at the end of the retreat, our our flights home 
crossed over on a layover in Tahiti that lasted for a whole day. So Kuka graciously acted as my tour guide and um, I can't speak any French at all. So I couldn't even like hail the cab or anything and get my cash out and all these things. And Kuka was so nice to help with all of these things. And, and, and then we ended up in a tattoo parlor in Tahiti together and the rest is history. <laughs> so Kuka, uh, Dr. Joseph, it was born in New York and raised in Haiti. And um, she went to university there and graduated in 2003 and moved back to New York. And um, she did an internal medicine um, residency and then, and then a fellowship in hospice and palliative care. And so she's just one of those special unicorn people that deals with that part of life. And, um, I'm so glad that she could come, come see us now. Um, and now she's a palliative care, um, uh, director or, or I guess a hospice medical director. And, um, so I'm, I'm excited to hear all of your perspective, Kuka. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's an honor to be able to be here and definitely talk on that subject and, and just be with you and be here with everybody. I know. I wish we could. I wish it wasn't COVID and we could be together on a beach again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so part of what we're going to talk about is um, last week we heard from a lovely doula in um, Minneapolis and she had such insights, you know, to a whole different world that we hadn't heard. And so we'd, we'd love to hear, we're going to ask some questions now. We've talked about the birth end of things quite a bit, and now we're going to get to ask Dr. Joseph more kind of on the death side of things. And as her experience, um, as a, as a black woman physician and, um, as an immigrant physician and, her experiences and what she's learned. And um, so that's, that's where we're going to go today. So let's dive in. Um, <laughs> so kind of what's been happening nationally right now, you know, we, we've been hearing a lot of the law enforcement side of things, you know, driving while black and the way that you could be treated looking over your shoulder, racial biases in that system. What about seeking health care while black? Were you taught anything about that in your medical training? Um, or or what have you gained in your experiences since practicing? Um, since practicing, I mean, um, as a person um, seeking health care uh, for myself, uh, is a different experience than being on the other side of things and being the healthcare provider. So it's kind of two experiences, you know, in once. And I think what you're asking is more um, my training. Um, did they specifically um, teach me anything about taking care of people of color? Um, I would say not in a positive way. Um, whenever that came up to make that differentiation between uh, treating um, one person versus that other person, it wasn't in a positive way. 
So for example, it was common knowledge that most African-American um, probably would be seeking pain medication. So this was kind of attributed. It was a known thing and everybody talked about it. But there's a, a lot of it. The logic is as African-Americans, we have, um, you know, we have, for example, sickle cell disease. Uh, which is typical to our color. So one of the things that we do in patients with sickle cell disease, which is a blood disease where there's occlusion of the blood vessels, which leads to a lot of pain. And the patients, when they are in crisis, they have uh, serious pain and, uh, and we tend to undermine. Um, so my experience as far as what do they teach us as how do we treat a person of color or what we call special considerations in um, medicine for or health disparities. These are later on in my career that I, that I heard about it, but it was mostly in a negative way. Um, mm. And as far as end of life care, what is well known is that it's uh, very difficult to discuss end of life matters within uh, the person of color or African Americans just because um, uh, of so many things. For example, um, there's distrust in the system, um, there is distrust in healthcare providers really caring for them. So, having to have these hard conversations that could be easier with a population that is already privileged in this country and trust the system is most often harder when you're treating people of color for so many reasons, including um, literacy, health literacy, including previous experiences. So they bring all that to the table. So uh, from the beginning of training, as far as I can remember in all honesty, when that was brought up, the special considerations were not in a positive way. It was mostly like, beware of this, beware of that, don't do this, don't give that, you know, they're playing uh, the system. You know, it was mostly in that matter, honestly. Mm. Did you experience, once you started practicing, did you find that that was true? Definitely not, especially having practiced before coming here in Haiti for a little bit after graduation. Our seekers, we did not have that concept of addiction. And it's always been very difficult for me to understand that where I'm coming from a country where there's a lack of opioids, a lack of resources, and we never... Um, withheld um, such medication to a sickler and and thought of them as seeking, except when I came here, uh, then that seeking experience and this was so obvious and the mistrust or, you know, things like that. Um, so um, so it was a, quite a shock for me, but at the same time I was learning, I was in training, this was a new um a new society to me. It was a new health system to me. So, um, so it was, I, you know, I kind of forgot, forgot for a second as your training. So your trainers, your attendings are supposed to mold the way you practice. So when you're coming in, even if your gut feeling is saying one thing, but 
it, it's just the way that it is until until you mature enough in the in the field in the community in the healthcare field then you can independently in all autonomy say no that's not the right thing but eventually definitely it was proven to be wrong and in my field like end of life care so there's a big portion of what we do is pain management mm-hmm. uh, so beyond the sickle cell patient which is uh, mostly um uh, 100% um African American, then you go to the other side where cancer patients, pain patients. So you have all call all rates, and you still see if a white person comes with pain, it is more likely to be treated as real pain versus an African American presenting with the same cancer or another cancer to be trusted or to be believed to have real pain and to be taught to be seeking drugs. So. Yeah. No, it has proven to be not true, and there's data out there, research that it is not true. We're all human; it's the same body. Um, there's a reason for that, and also, I am not negating the fact that we do have addiction in the African American population. There's all those ways that you can differentiate um, scientifically. Uh, a drug seeker, somebody who is not really in pain or trying to get, there's all these tools available. There are all those tools available, but they're not being used. Yeah. Um, to differentiate people who are addicted versus people um, who are seeking. Yeah. And we live in uh, the rural south which has those addiction problems in the white populations even more so than in other racial populations in other parts of the country and i think there is a failure to use those tools to even differentiate here as well so unfortunately i i agree i think we see that in so many ways on the you know, the other side of the coin, just like you said, how about you as a patient? I mean, you're a human being, so you've had to go to the doctor before too. And then you have this unique experience of being a physician. What do you see when you're the patient? Um, When I am the patient, so it was initially coming here. So I came into this country pregnant. So I was right in (laughs) <laughs> the healthcare. I did. I didn't have a lag a lag time <laughs> before being exposed <laughs> to it. So I came here pregnant. So by day two, I was already in a health center uh, seeking help. Um, I think that um, you know I came into the, the, this country not as a doctor, but I came in as um, you know somebody that was pregnant, as somebody that wasn't working anymore. So I went to the system. Uh, so a healthcare, uh, a healthcare center, that's where I, you know, I sought care initially for my son, my firstborn. Um, and I can tell you, it is, um, it is, it is interesting, um, in the fact that I was a physician already, I knew what was going on with my body, but the wait time was lengthy. Then, um, you know, the smile in the people's face were, you know, were definitely that that wasn't there. So almost you felt like you were coming in begging for care versus you were coming in uh, welcome, especially. And I'm not talking about 
illness. I'm talking about mom, baby, maternity, which is supposed to be like a happy moment. So that was my experience. Um, also coming from a Caribbean country. So there is, this is a disconnect or this is where it's, um, so I remember being told like, you look for the white doctor because it was that doctor that we felt had the better training. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, this is the same white doctor that you did not trust. Mm. This is the same white doctor that probably looked at you or made comments. Um, so it was, it's an interesting twist. And when you say it, when, when thinking about it now is it's similar to when you're looking for a home, you look at the demographics, right? The demography, you know, what's there, what percentage of black. And we didn't, we have our own bias. So we think that where most white people live, that's where there's better taxes. So you seek that, but at the same time, your kid is going to go to school and be the only black kid or the minority and be, and be discriminated upon. So it's the same experience, at least for me. And I'm talking about my experience that they recommended you you find that person because most likely he went to the better school. Most likely he had the best training. But at the same time, I remember my first doc was actually a Caucasian white person. And, but the bedside manners didn't, it didn't really work for me. And I kept on thinking, oh my God, he went to the best and I'm here to eventually become a doctor and I want to go to the best too. But I am not comfortable with that person. He doesn't value me. He doesn't see me. He doesn't ask me because training from Haiti is like, we know everybody. We know the person's pet. We know the grandchildren. We know the name of, we know the, name of the horse. So here there was that, uh, you know, are you thinking about the baby's name? No questions like that. So uh, until when my son, so I did the whole health center, had my baby in a community hospital thought that I was supposed to stay in that same system until somebody told me, well, you have health insurance. You can go to any doctor you want. But that time it was a year later being in this country. So I actually sought for a black female doctor and the experience was totally different. So it was a, a waiting room. They had pictures on the wall. Kids had play areas. And, you know, and she really cared about me and I could feel a better connection. Uh, so it's interesting that a part of us think very highly, not because of the care is higher or better, but because we know the health disparities or we know those the racism or the privilege. So we trust that, oh, that person has better a better chance of having more training better knowledge, but it doesn't always come with better understanding of who you are or where you're coming from or more consideration or better patient-doctor relationship. So that's one of the many experiences that I've had coming in and, and many other instances to the point that right now, they we're talking more about race and I've, I know more African-American um, uh, people, especially people who are raised and born here, who have been here, who are not immigrants, that they, as long as they can remember, they've always sought a black doctor because they trusted them more to begin with. 
and they already were exposed to that discrimination or that bad feeling or that distrust that they don't even waste time and these are the doctors they look for. And they'd rather stay home and suffer or rather wait longer to get to the doctor until they can find a, a black doctor to take care of them. Um, mm. So different ways to look at it. Um, and I think uh, what's going to be best for like our Caucasian doctors to make it better is to listen to what we're looking for. And we're not looking for special consideration. We're just looking for equal consideration. Um, you know, when we get there, when we go there, we're looking for people who understand our history because our history goes with us in everything we do, including end of life care. So there is studies being done out there on how to care for people of color in this country, because the even in end of life care, there's a whole different protocol because the African-American community is so tightly, their lives is so tightly um, related or uh, tangled to their belief, meaning their, uh, their, their spiritual belief, their religion. So you cannot talk end of life if you don't understand how God plays a role since slavery in their lives mm. and everything, even their health, the way they die, the way they breathe, everything is tangled to their faith base. Mm. So it, it's pretty interesting. And until doctors can understand that, that we're not more difficult to deal with or more difficult to understand because we're just angry or we're just not educated or we're just, there's a trust issue. And then also we have data and studies that would say once you understand where we're coming from, the relationship is just as flawless as any other population. Wow. So Dr. Joseph, I'm hearing you say this about seeking black healthcare providers and considering where we live, where Meg and I live and knowing that there's probably not a lot of options for our black community here to find healthcare providers who, um, who they feel comfortable with. And I, you know, I work in birth, I'm a midwife and I think that midwifery care is a, a good, a good um, option for all people. But what I'm seeing here is a move for the black community towards midwifery care because they feel like they're going to have more um, time and culturally sensitive care. And I think that that's truly unfortunate that people are feeling forced into a type of care that they maybe wouldn't have chosen um, because, because they don't have very many black OBGYNs in this area. And I'm, I'm, I'm you live in Atlanta. Is that right? Yes. Are, are black physicians fairly available to most people there? I would say in the metro Atlanta area. Yes. Yes. So, um, but uh, I would say in this area, yes, so you they'll probably find a decent amount. But Atlanta does not reflect most of the 
of the country because Atlanta in itself, and it's known for where you have the most black professionals, the most black, um, you know, elite or elite, (laughs) sorry for my accent. Uh, So I think that, um, that issue may not be a bigger problem here, but at the same time, Atlanta is in Georgia and just the, you know, um, the culture here, um, our history here in Georgia. Um, So that, that, that affects a lot in how we're treated. I mean, practicing medicine here in Georgia is different um, than practicing. I've practiced in Arizona, I've practiced in New York. So it goes along when being in the South and, um, and even in Metro Atlanta, it may be a little bit better, but you do feel the tension and you do feel uh, that you are in the South and you're reminded of that. <laughs> um, and everybody knows the culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my medical training was in Memphis. So a very similar area culturally as Atlanta. And then now I'm only four hours away from that in the same state, you know, in a rural area. And it's completely the opposite, you know, Uh, and it's amazing how different two areas, two places can be that are that close geographically. And yeah, how, how that lack of availability of black and person of color, um, physicians, I think, uh, I just feel like I see that effects of that every day, especially since moving to the more, more rural area. So obviously something I would like to see is more training of black physicians and physicians of color. And that certainly needs to happen coming down the pipeline. But what other kind of educational or systemic ideas do you have for us to address that problem? I mean, with the existing white providers that we have, and then the trainees that we're putting through the system that are white. I think one thing that we didn't have early on in training, and I think that we're doing, and actually in palliative care, they're doing, uh, there's a, you know, like there's one of my friends who's a professor and she's doing a culture, um, uh, so a community-based education for our Caucasian doctors to be able to provide care to our African-Americans. And it's being done in South Carolina. Deep South Carolina, mm. I forgot the name of. Uh, it's a very historical um, area. Is it Charleston? No, Charleston is it's more metro, uh, okay. almost like plantation, very rural South Carolina. Yes, South Carolina. Okay. And also in Birmingham. So two very um, uh, specific and important places where they're teaching. Actually, the, the, the research project starts with that she went into the community, had uh, a, a people of color, African-Americans group tell us how they want to be treated at the end of life, went to the clergy, trained the clergy, trained those people, and also have them talk to another cohort of white people and eventually brought Caucasian physicians to listen to the community on how they want to be treated. And from that, they have a whole protocol on how to address 
end of life care in the African American. So that care is made by African American, dictated by them, and that's going to be applied. So I think it's more having a cultural education, sensitivity education, diversity, um, and having these tough conversation without making um, the other race or the whites uncomfortable, but being able to understand that racism is real. The way that we feel is not just a feeling, it's really ingrained and real. And to listen to how we want to be treated and how you should approach and develop trust. Keywords, body language, things that you shouldn't say, things that are kinder to say. So I think it's all through education. I think a lot of that has not been done because we were afraid that, you know, and I'm not sure <laughs> if the, the, the fear was more uh, racism-based or it was a fear of having too much tension between us. But I think now is the time to really go back and, 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 and teach people on those sensitive issues. So more diversity and cultural inclusion um, 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 curriculums for our medical students. And, and then if you are in residency or even if you're in practice, having, uh, you know, uh, having continuous discussion about what is real and what is right. Uh, and from there, because really what we found out is that people don't know. Uh, and my opinion is, yes, racism is there, um, but a lot of our, you know, friends or co-citizens, uh, they, they can only know what they know. And if you, if you don't teach for them to know better, then they cannot do better. So uh, some people like the whole concept of uh, uh, implicit bias. I think that's what we have to tackle. Because nobody wants, nobody consider themselves racist because it's so bad, it's so mean. But, you know, I know I led a course with my team once on implicit bias and people were like, oh, when I do that, that's how you feel? I do that all the time. My grandmother told me that's what I, you know, um, or to call somebody honey. You think it's, you know, it's something that is, you know, uh, affectionate. But to us, historically, it's demeaning. So it's really about the things that, you know, um, other races don't know of how we feel. Um, so that once we teach them to respect that or not to do certain things, um, then I think that's how we're going to have change conversation, education, um, and also, uh, to start very early and also not to give up on the, let's say the, so we, in end of life, for example, at one point in palliative care, we had found out in conversation and communication that there was a big problem on how doctors were talking to patients about end of life care and not showing enough empathy and compassion. Mm. So at one point, we tried to educate the attendings and people that have already trained and it was so difficult. And uh, so we decided, no, the next generation is not going to be as cold. We want to teach them right so they can talk to 
patients' rights. So now we went to the medical school and put curriculums because we did not talk about death and dying in medical school. It was the bad thing because we were here to save people. So we were never trained on how to deliver bad news, how to address death and dying, for example, so that when, when it came, when, when we were doctors, we didn't know what to say because we felt like we were failing the patients when they were dying, when we know that we cannot save everybody. So, uh, so people were dying and they were never told that they were dying. That conversation never transpired. So to go back to that topic, what we did is that at one point we felt almost like, oh my God, is it too late? So if it's too late for the people that have trained already, let's train the people. So we started putting curriculums out there at medical school level. And it happened in nursing as well. So now it's required for nurses to have some rotation in hospice and, you know, all that. But I think as far as race, I don't think we should have that same technique and say, okay, let's teach our medical students. I think we should continue to teach the attendings, the people already in practice, because we cannot give up on, you know, on this generation, on if we can help one person get better care or get treated better in an office setting. So it has to be systematic education and all health system have to emphasize on this is a priority and this is affecting my population. And that's what's happening right now. So my health system and everybody else's health system is making statements about Black Lives Matter, is having, um, you know, Zoom meetings about diversity. So we have, um, you know, people of color that are in leadership who are, being vulnerable and talking about how hard it is to sit at the table with everybody else and being mm-hmm. heard and, and not being sanctioned and sent to HR because they said a racial word or they talked about a racial topic because we were being sent to human resources when we start talking about our struggles. So then it was, then you were raising something that was bad for the environment. So now people are being asked to come to these meetings to talk about diversity, to talk about their experiences and how they feel. And now it's also being taught to the people, to the, you know, to people of other races to not feel defensive, to not feel like we're being, we're aggressing them or negating them to listen and hear us. So it's a big shift. So I think it's ongoing conversations and listening and validating how we feel. And that, that's all we've been asking for centuries, uh, to be at the table and to be heard. Um, so that's how I think we can change things. That's awesome. I hope that, like you said, this is the beginning of the change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing to hear, like, it's amazing for me as a physician to hear that there wasn't end of life training. I mean, we had, it was drilled into us in medical school. So, you know, that change was made in the direction of teaching. And now that's taught in medical schools and nursing schools, as you said. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, I hope that this is the catalyst 
even though it's painful to go through, I've been thinking of it kind of like birth, you know, to, to put forth something new and beautiful into the world and to, you know, to see it come to fruition takes a little bit of birthing pains to get through. And I hope that, like you said, the systems that are in place that are starting to listen to voices better, you know, and even me on like on a personal level, me trying to to really amplify and, and listen to voices and listen actively. Sarah and I have been talking about active listening versus passive listening and learning and being very open to, you know, our own implicit biases that we carry with us that we really, truly thought we didn't. And I hope that that's what carries forward both on a personal level for not only healthcare providers, but for white people. And I hope that it's what carries forward for the systems that are in place, because I, I agree with you hundred percent, you know, I, I think it's going to definitely need to be taught from the level of a, of a first year medical student to an attending who's been practicing for 50 years. And I hope that we can see the change in our lifetime. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're hoping for that. And when I see uh, research projects so focused, so, uh, one thing is uh, one one thing that strikes me, especially at the end of life, we've seen that more African Americans, you know, are staying longer on life support, for example, or are going through painful procedures much more than, um, for example, uh, for the, the white population, uh, and and what it is is just the distrust. So if we say, for example, we don't feel that this will be beneficial for you and they know that it's available. And one of the things we think about, well, if it's available, are you saying it's available for the white people and you're trying mm. to dissuade me versus we have the same conversation with both white and black, but then they're up probably to have more of those extraordinary measures at the end of life because they do not trust those conversations and they feel, well, science invented it. You're giving it to the white people. So I want it where, it, but the, 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 the white people just presented with the same situation and understand and they can trust the system and they know that it's not beneficial. So they go to less suffering. Um, so we have less, for example, in the medical field, we, we call about patients having advanced directives, for example. So there's more people, white people have a higher percentage of, of having completed their advanced directives versus the African-American population. Because even at presentation of such document, it's almost like, are you, are you asking me to sign my life off? You know, that distrust. Why are you asking me this? Do you ask your white people the same thing? And then there's health literacy. You know, this, that's what the disparity is. So there's a big difference. And that leads to more suffering at the end of life, more, um, you know, we have, did I say, like, you know, people who die at home have a better experience. So you have lesser people from the African-American community not dying at home with family peacefully because they are 
you know, uh, they, they feel like this is why I need to be in the hospital. It's being offered. I want to be offered all, you know, the same opportunities just because I'm not distraught and not seeing the real meaning that we're trying to offer. So code status, you know, we have, you know, less of us, you know, having a do not resuscitate status, you know, because of all those issues. And just to explain to them that we're not giving up on you by discussing an allow natural death path or, you know, when you have terminal cancer or terminal heart failure, that's not what we're saying. But the perception is, oh, why you want to give up on me? You mm. know, uh, versus you have more whites utilizing our hospice benefit, which we pay into it, you know, in our paycheck. So uh, getting them to understand you've paid into the hospice benefit, then use that benefit. It's good for you. You you know, it's free. So it's very complicated, you know, um, um, to do this and the health disparities are very real, are very, very real. And I can tell you, I've, I've also practiced in Albany, Georgia, which is even deeper south <laughs> than, than uh, Atlanta. And it's and sometimes, and that's that when I tell people that they don't understand, even as a black doctor taking care of a black family, I represent the system. Yeah, and I've had people come to me and said over there, like they sent you to do this, or they using you as a puppet of the system mm. to come tell me this. You know, mm. So it, even you know, I mean, data is it would be better for the same culture and the same race to take care of their own, but the systemic racism and oppression, and sometimes can be even higher than having that person come in. Because even in slavery, our own people sold us. Uh, mm. you know, so it's deeper than that. All these issues are really, really deep and uh, to understand that and to hear to hear us tell you how we wanna be treated when we come to the to the clinic. So when that happens, are you able to form a relationship with that patient and that family and break through? Or do you find that it's still even difficult to do that? Well, it's people to people. It's, uh, you know, background to background. Some people, you know, and, and that's how we're trained. We're trained for communication. We're trained to build relationship and trust um, and to deliver bad news. Most of the time I'm able to break that and, um, and, get, um, and, and, and get them to understand that I'm here for the better uh, good or for their best interest. Um, but sometimes I feel like the... Like, for example, that example that I just gave you about the person that says they sent you is that the oppression, their anger was such at a high level that it was difficult for them to see me mm. or who I really was or even to see my skin color. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, you know, I will support you. I'm here to, to advocate for you. But the oppression, and that's probably the same thing that's happening with, you know, um, the anger out there of the looting and all that. It, 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 it's an anger. It's the oppression. And you kind of lose it because you've been oppressed for so long that you cannot make sense of this. And mm -hmm. you're human and they can see you no matter what you do. So uh, sometimes it's very difficult and you cannot 
cross the barriers or even get to that trust, um, even as an African-American provider to another, um, to an African-American family. Uh, that's how strong history is, you know, and we talk about generational trauma and pain. And you, no matter what you say, and, and also you add the end of life trauma and the end of grief, the anticipatory grief and all that. So it's, it's a, it's a cathartic. I mean, it's, it's really burning. So it can be very intense. Mm-hmm. So, even for me. So if you look at uh, a, a Caucasian person handling these type of con- con- conversations and not understanding the culture and not being as compassionate or can relate to this, then it sometimes it's it doesn't even happen. The conversation doesn't even start or happen. They just go in and they're like, you know, I can't do this. This is not gonna go anywhere. Mm. And they give up. So a lot of education that has to happen, and the physician has to do a lot of working themselves to be able to present themselves at the end of life and face um, the African American population. Do you ever have the opposite happen where you have a, a, a white or Caucasian family or Asian family or any non-person of color or, or I guess even yeah. there's like shades of black, you know, families. And do you have the opposite happen where they have a distrust in you because of how you look? Oh, yes. Many, many times. And that's when people don't understand it. You know, it's not about what the other race says sometimes it's just about the look it's just about you know certain things that they would say definitely often so i've had instances where i would go into a room and there's a caucasian person and a patient i love very much i'm coming with all my heart i'm here to do good and i would introduce first of all i will introduce myself as dr joseph I have say my specialty. Sometimes I spend, I remember one time I spent an hour talking to them mm-hmm. about what's going on and all that. And at the end, they asked me, when is the doctor coming? Mm-hmm. And I know for sure that I've showed my badge, and, but it's still like, you're, you're still not the doctor. And I've had people say, you know what? We want the white doctor. We want the male doctor. So I've had very, very open, you know, you know, said, you know, no, we, we don't want you coming in. So, um, yes. And, and I'm, I'm not the only one. Ask any physicians, African-American physicians across the country. And we're still showing up to care. We're still showing up every single day to provide care with all our hearts, despite uh, being treated um, this way. So yes, every one of us have occurrences almost daily or weekly. I would say weekly. <laughs> um, it may not be as intense or as blunt, but there will be some type of body language and we already know what that means. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, such an interesting point because I, you know, Sarah thought of this too. And I've always wondered the same question, which is as a 
physician, you know, it's a predominantly white male profession. How do you think that your experience would even differ from a white female counterpart? Oh, yes. Um, a very different experience. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, um, there's, uh, there are songs about it. There are poems about it. The black female is at the bottom of the chain. Mm. Um, unfortunately, so, uh, the same, you know, the same person, female to female, but different race, uh, Caucasian versus uh, African-American, the Caucasian person, even though I hear their struggle and I can relate to their, to the sexism and all that, but it is deeper for me because I'm not only female, but I am a black female. So mm -hmm. at this point in time, there is privilege by default there. Um, so we are really at the bottom of the chain as, you know, and, and, and the, the sad thing about it is we as African-American women, we, since we're born, we're fighting. Mm. Uh, since we're born, actually our mothers, our fathers want the best for us and we have that task to be the best of the best. So, but what is so sad, uh, so deceiving, depressing is no matter how we try to reach excellence and excellence or uh, perfection, no matter how hard the, you know, bigger the diploma, all the training and all that, we will face our skin color mm. at every junction and every step of us trying to make it out there. And, uh, and sometimes you realize, how can we, you keep saying, because when, when I look back at all I've been through or all these little microaggressions or macroaggressions or blatant racism, and you still wake up in the morning and do what you do, especially in my field. So that's empathy and compassion and smile and hugs all day. <laughs> so despite all of this is, um, it, it's very, yes, there is definitely, yes, there's sexism, but then the African-American woman has to deal with sexism and racism. So we're definitely at a disadvantage and we struggle with this daily. Um, sitting at the table, we can say the same thing as a, a Caucasian uh, person and she's heard differently. Um, not because I use the wrong words, not because I can say the same exact thing, but that person will get credit for what I've said. Mm. Um, and will be heard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think you're the best of the best. Oh, I think <laughs> you're the best of the best. If I'm, when I'm at the end of my life, I hope you or someone just like you is there giving your hugs because you're just so warm and professional and perfect at what you do. And I have so much respect for you for your whole journey to me needs to be a movie or something. Aww, it's crazy. It's just, it's outstanding. Your strength and resilience and knowledge and just the joy that you exude and kindness. It's I, when I'm with you, it's like, you just have this warmth that I just bask in it. Like it's just wonderful. And I, I appreciate you sharing that 
with so many people in the world and even people who would treat you so horribly that you still, like you said, show up and give that bright, warm sunshine in the hardest part of their lives, no matter what it's, I have so much respect for you. And I, I love hearing you talk. I love hearing your stories. <laughs> I love hearing everything you're saying. Um, I think the last part of what we were going to ask is um, what Sarah and mine's goal for our podcast is, is just bridging divides, bridging gaps, especially in healthcare where we see that there is a need, we want to to facilitate filling that or bridging it. And so how can we, you know, how can we personally and as physicians and midwives and practitioners, you know, what are some things that would make you feel advocated for both from a patient standpoint and from a black physician standpoint, like you just said, you know, how can we, how can we bridge that gap and find new ways forward? I think what we did together in Bora Bora is one of the things, which is just hearing stories and sharing. Yes. Yes. I think, I think, you know, the gap is just to do things with our heart. You know, I think that the same way that you would uh, treat you're on. And that's how I feel too, because I could have the same thing and be a racist too, right? But uh, I think it's just you treat people the same way you would want to be treated. So with also with us being people of color to understand that there may be an extra step to do for us uh, just because uh, it could be, uh, you know, learning about body languages, uh, like I said, about certain, um, you know, um, uh, terms. It's about learning about us and hearing us, maybe having more discussions and letting us tell our stories. Because what happens is that those stories that are coming out right now is that the African-American people have been telling each other those stories forever. But it was always a no-no to share that vulnerability with everybody else uh, out of fear of not being validated, out of fear of being understood. I think the more we hear those stories and the more we understand that they are valid because what may not make sense to you is that, oh, that's simple you know, uh, but makes a lot of sense and has more value. So I think it's validating what we're saying, it's active listening, it's being genuine. And a lot of times, um, and we've had that discussion the other day in one of our diversity meetings and said, well, we do a lot of things. I give money, I give, you know, gifts, but sometimes that gift may be demeaning if it's not solicited. So, you know, little things like that uh, to understand where we're coming from, uh, having books available and seeing people. Now, in, even in end-of-life care, when we're talking about options, one thing we do good is that, you know, what are your goals? Uh, how do you want to ask? 
said, I'm here for you today. You're here at that doctor's visit. Did I, did I ask everything? Did I treat you hell? Do you feel comfortable with how, um, you know, this encounter went through? Um, am I missing something? Uh, and then open-ended questions so that that person feels that there was uh, an invitation to trust. So um, an, an encounter should never be cold. Uh, with any patients, but even with a person of color, because I feel like me to go to an office and have a Caucasian person that's not warm to treat me, that's going to mark me forever because I'm coming with my most, in my most vulnerable state, being sick. Um, so I think it's uh, making sure you pause which is very difficult in healthcare, <laughs> that at the end that we said, eh, did, did I meet your needs? Did I cover everything? Is there anything else I can do for you? Um, or, or even being very vulnerable. Did I make you uncomfortable at any point? Um, um, you know, because I even go deeper myself. I'm not asking everybody because I go deeper when I do mine my encounters. Um, but uh, I, I think it's just seeing people. And now more than ever, I think right now is more because everybody's struggling, everybody's suffering, everybody is angry or, or in pain. Um, so I think as a provider working with my counterparts is to know on a personal level that I'm struggling. On a personal level, my story is being told out there and I've felt like this my whole life. It's not new. And we've all felt like this our whole life. So we're coming in to do the job. We're coming in to be with you, to be part of the team. Our performance is still the same, but it requires more energy for us to show up to work or to show up for our patients right now um, and to understand uh, that. Um, and if there's something, and I, me personally, I can say for me, and I know that's something that we've discussed, I am African-American and Caribbean. So I, I welcome a conversation in the hallway. I will welcome somebody to say, how are you doing in this moment? Uh, how is that affecting you? Are you okay? Um, or I know you're not okay, but I'm here for you. And, you know, things like that, I am totally open to that. But I cannot tell you that everybody is open to these comments. Um, but if you can ask them like, okay, I know this is a difficult, how do you want, how do you want me to be there for you? Mm. How can I help this? Um, and have them tailor it. Some people may say, I'm not ready to talk. Um, some people may say, you know, I'm happy you came and asked and I appreciate it. Some people may feel, oh, is she really honest? Because we have had people who say one thing, but don't mean it. You know, you have to really be genuine in presenting it, you know, because there's still that distrust, even when you mean well. And um, I think for both our patients to say, we hear you. We know it's a tough time. How can we make it better? Uh, yes. That was. Yes, that is so helpful and beautiful. And I hope we can share what you're telling us with like the masses. Maybe we can create a medical school curriculum and you can 
be the speaker. I would listen to you. A nursing curriculum, yes. pharmacist curriculum, and midwife. Yes, medical every everybody. Yeah, all the people. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Joseph, Meg has been singing your praises for like the last six months, and I can certainly see why I've annoyed. Oh, really? Six months? I've been sitting here quite quiet because I've forgotten that I'm a host and I've just been soaking in all of this, and I can't wait to go back and listen again and make notes next time. Okay. Um, I feel like you have opened my mind in ways I didn't know that it needed opening. And I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. You're a busy doctor and we, we really appreciate you coming and sharing, sharing your time and um, sharing your knowledge, which is so great. And yeah, I'm definitely, I looked for a pin everywhere because I wanted to take notes and I don't have one on my desk. So I'm definitely re-listening and taking notes. You know my number. You know where I I am. I do know your number. I will text you. Um, But thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you. I love you. I loved meeting you. Next time, I swear when COVID's over, we'll sit on a beach and we'll figure out how to heal the world together (laughs) yes and you're such a great healer you know all of you okay thank you for doing this thank you thank you so much bye-bye bye (laughs) thank you all so much for listening this episode is the second in a mini series we are doing about racial disparities in healthcare. Please share these episodes with your friends, your family, your coworkers. This is important, ongoing work addressing the racial disparities in our healthcare system. We will be continuing this much needed conversation through the future of our podcast, and we hope that you will continue to listen and learn with us as we passionately continue our healing journey and guide you into healing as well. Recorded and mixed by Nathan Galaski. Art and design by Sarah Gillum and Gabe Rosser. Theme song composed and performed by Jake Wesley Rogers. Thank you for listening to Hawaiian Hears.